This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of suicide, psychological abuse, and brainwashing that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Miguel Antonio Longo had struggled with depression in the past, but by 1991, he felt his future was bright. That year, after graduating from Cornell University, he found a way to give back to the world. He traveled to his parents' homeland of Puerto Rico to teach English. Miguel explored the island, open to new experiences. One day, while venturing through the busy streets of San Juan, he found himself inside an art gallery. He was approached by a pleasant man who invited him to a Bible study. Miguel, a devout Catholic, agreed to go. He would soon be drawn into the world of one of the fastest growing religious movements of the 1990s, the International Churches of Christ. What presented itself as a normal church was anything but. It was a controversial organization that is said to have pushed its members to the brink. Within six months, Miguel managed to extricate himself from the church, but the scars of his time there remained. Two years later, in August of 1993, Miguel was found hanging in his small Washington, D.C. apartment, dead of an apparent suicide. He was 24. He was but one of thousands of young people across the globe feeling pressured by the church. They had all joined to be saved, but had they actually started down a path to ruin? Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a ParCast original. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other podcast originals free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Cults free on Spotify, just open the app and type Cults in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is our second episode on Kip McKean. 
Last week, we followed his journey from mainstream preacher to the founding of his controversial church in Boston in 1979. The church became notorious for aggressive recruiting practices, intense tithing pressures, and preying on impressionable college students. This week, we'll see how the church grew on the West Coast in Los Angeles. We'll also hear more about how the church affected countless young lives and how Kip McKean's hubris eventually led to his downfall. Kip was determined to make his church a global entity. By the end of 1990, he had over 50,000 members in more than 100 churches across the globe. So far, the church showed no signs of slowing down. Kip was edging closer to his ultimate goal, worldwide evangelization within one generation. He believed this was the only way to save the world. Even those who already identified as Christians weren't saved because they weren't committed enough. He believed that his church alone carried on the tradition Christ had started on earth. It was the one true church, and he was its leader. In 1990, 36-year-old Kip decided it was finally time to leave Boston, where he'd founded the International Churches of Christ movement 11 years earlier. Heading west to Los Angeles would allow him to be closer to Asia, where they could recruit more members than ever before. Kip packed up his life and moved to L.A. with his wife, Elena, and their three young children. There, they led a small but faithful church that would grow to become the leading congregation in the ICOC. His family lived a luxurious life on the West Coast. They owned a three-bedroom house in the affluent Pacific Palisades neighborhood. All three of Kip's children attended elite private schools in Brentwood, and two of them had private tennis lessons with a former pro. He was hardly living the humble life of Christ. But how could he when everything Kip touched turned to gold? By 1993, his new home church in Los Angeles had grown from only 50 members to 2,500. He saw firsthand the effectiveness of his teachings. He witnessed people turn their lives around. He saw marriages saved. Struggling churches had even started approaching the International Churches of Christ to ask them for help in growing their own congregations. Kip helped turn them into successful ministries by installing some of his closest friends and pastors as leaders of these churches. It was a practice he called reconstruction. He was helping local congregations, but he was also growing his worldwide ministry. In accepting their guidance, the reconstructed churches were expected to preach Kip's version of Christianity. He specifically sought out church leaders who believed in his vision, leaders who wouldn't challenge him. He played favorites, showering gifts and praise on those who met his tough standards. Then he used their desire for his favor against them. He's said to have often pitted church leaders against one another to spur growth in their congregations. Always chasing his good graces, the leaders did everything they could to increase their recruitment numbers. They drove their congregations hard, asking them to spend long hours recruiting and to tithe even more of their income. But despite the rapid growth, the church as a whole had one glaring issue, retention. 
For every three new members that joined, within a year, two fell away from the church. And as people left, they began to speak out. Controversy had always dogged the ICOC, but in 1993, after the Washington Post published a feature about them, it reached another level. While Kip very vocally defended the church, ex-members grew louder. Former disciples spoke out against the exploitative and damaging practices that had made the church so vast in such a short period of time. They let the world know about their experiences with the aggressive recruitment, the excessive tithing, and the discipleship system that gave the church control over their members' lives. Throughout the 1990s, former members talked about the church to anyone who would listen. 2020, Fox News, and Inside Edition all ran primetime specials on the ICOC, questioning their behavior. Former members also spoke to local papers and posted their experiences online. The stories frequently used one word to characterize the church, brainwashing. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. Author and psychiatrist Dr. Robert J. Lifton theorizes that there are eight steps to brainwashing, or as he calls it, thought reform. All of these were utilized by the ICOC. The first and most important step is what Lifton calls milieu control, or a strategy to control the environment around a person. He writes, through this milieu control, the totalist environment seeks to establish domain over not only the individual's communication with the outside, but also his communication with himself. As part of the milieu control, the church dictated the way its members viewed the outside world. As soon as someone joined, their daily lives were consumed by Kip's teachings. Members were expected to spend 15 to 30 hours a week on church activities. The church taught members that unless they were completely committed to the cause, they wouldn't be going to heaven. It was an all or nothing agreement. Members received eternal life through Christ, and in return, the church received their mortal one. One of the most controversial and effective ways the church controlled members was through discipleship. While Kip had faced backlash against this practice from the earliest days of the church, he believed it made his members better Christians, and most importantly, it was the linchpin of his evangelism strategy. In discipleship, Kip mandated all new members, regardless of their age, must be paired with a discipler or a senior member of the church. The discipler was responsible for counseling them. They spoke on the phone to their disciples every day and met several times a week to keep new members on the narrow path of God. For Kip, this was key to a spiritually rich life. However, the disciplers did more than just counsel new members. They made key life choices for them. For example, if you were in the church, you could not date outside of it. While this is a common practice among other conservative religious groups, the International Churches of Christ took it to even greater extremes. It's been reported that in their churches, disciples would decide if you could date at all. If an elder did not feel a disciple was spiritually ready to be in a relationship, they would have to wait. Young disciples had a tough path to walk. 
Most of them were told to spend hours a week recruiting new members. Many were college students who worked low-paying jobs on top of their studies. Leaders also pressured these young disciples to donate large sums from their meager paychecks to the church. But it didn't stop there. To keep young disciples immersed in the church and accountable to their new obligations, new members were encouraged to live together. The surface reasons made sense. It not only helped young members save money that they could then pass to the church, but it also allowed more time for fellowship. But it also gave the church more control over the disciples' lives. Once the church became the center of the disciples' lives, members questioned their own judgment. They blindly trusted the church instead. Jane Akshar, a former member of the church in London, wrote, I always believed that I was wrong and they were right. While Kip was living a cushy life in a large three-bedroom house near the beach, young members of his church were reportedly crammed into one-bedroom apartments with three other people. Roommates were supposed to encourage one another on their spiritual journey. They held each other accountable, making sure everyone in the group made it to all of their weekly meetings and that they spent enough time recruiting. One of the most important parts of being a totally committed disciple was recruitment. In an interview with Fox News, Brandon Hearn, a former member and a student at the University of Arizona, said he was told to change majors from pre-med to communications because it would allow him more time to recruit. Other student disciples were apparently told that they couldn't slack on recruiting just because finals were coming up. Some former members even said they were pressured into dropping out of school. These young people wanted to be saved, and they were constantly told that anything short of total devotion, including consistent tithing and constant recruitment, meant damnation. Brandon told Fox News, think about the pressure of that. If I can't get someone to come with me to this Bible study, then my eternal salvation is at stake. The burden placed on young disciples never let up. There was always more to do. Spreadsheets were posted in churches to tally not only how many people each disciple brought in, but how much money everyone was donating also. Kip explained in sermons that members needed to practice what they called sacrificial living. If they were not financially sacrificing enough, they were not good disciples and were unworthy of being saved. Jesus' disciples gave up everything to follow him. Why shouldn't the members of Kip's church? The church expected a standard tithe of 10% of each member's monthly income as a baseline. But there were also special projects that required even more money. For example, if Kip and the church wanted to found a new ministry, they needed funds. At times, members were required to give upwards of 40 times their normal tithe to funnel money to the central leadership. But in this environment, members were proud of their commitment to sacrificial living. They often boasted about the material possessions they sold in order to give to the church. Members donated with reckless abandon because they believed God was in control. Just as he had done for the Israelites in the desert, he would provide for them. In their quest for eternal salvation, disciples wanted everyone in their congregation to know they were on good terms with the church and therefore with God. Marcy Hooten Parker from the church in Phoenix claims to have seen this firsthand. She said, 
you develop the understanding that others are watching what you do and expecting a certain level of commitment and performance. You hear the gossip and rumor that abounds about those who are not doing well spiritually or those who are struggling with sin. And it wasn't just disciples feeling this pressure. Each ICOC leader was given a direct mandate of how much money their congregation had to raise, told that it came directly from KIPP. Lead evangelist of the Indianapolis Church of Christ, Ed Powers, said, The amount that we give is not an amount that is decided upon by us, but it is an amount that is decided upon by the folks who oversee us in L.A. But unbeknownst to KIPP, senior church leaders were getting fed up with his demands. Things were about to reach a breaking point. Up next, internal conflicts lead to open rebellion in KIPP's ever-growing church. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now, back to the story. By 1993, 39-year-old Kip McKean and the International Churches of Christ had exploded. In only 14 years, the movement had grown from just 30 members to over 50,000 across the globe. However, despite the church's growth, trouble rumbled under the surface. Members who left the organization began to speak out against the extreme practices of ICOC. More and more media outlets reported their stories. Kip tried to ignore the negative press and console his flock. He explained in letters to church members that this was nothing more than persecution. Jesus had also been persecuted, and since the ICOC was the continuation of his movement, the bad press was to be expected. He advised members not to read or watch any negative material about the church, including primetime specials, newspaper articles, and letters from cult experts. It was all considered spiritual pornography, and it was a sin to consume. Kip wrote off any material that challenged him as anti-Christian, but this was another form of brainwashing, possibly what former Moon Cult member and mental health counselor Stephen Hassan calls information control. This describes the effort to minimize or discourage access to non-cult sources of information. The church was so committed to keeping members isolated that there were reports of members being discouraged from going on vacation. Elders apparently didn't want disciples to take a break from their missions and feared that if they got too far outside of the insular community, they might not ever come back. When members did leave, the deep relationships they had created with other members were shattered. Those who left the church were essentially viewed as outcasts who were unwilling to see the light. The ICOC was okay with this. In its eyes, 
former members should be ostracized after leaving God and rejecting eternal salvation. One member who felt particularly devastated after leaving was Miguel Longo. He had moved to Puerto Rico and fallen in love with the church. He eventually left, but two years afterward, feeling hurt and embarrassed, he ended his own life. His parents believed his suicide was a direct result of the time he spent in ICOC. In a Washington Post article, they said Miguel felt ashamed for falling victim to what he viewed as a con. He believed he had let his family down. Miguel's father told the Post, when they kill the mind, kill the soul, it's impossible to prove. But if you're a parent, you know what he was like before he went in and what he was like after he came out. Miguel's story in the Washington Post was one of many which contributed to the mounting media pressure on the ICOC. But it wasn't Kip's only problem. The church also faced internal turmoil. In February of 1994, 40-year-old Kip and the International Churches of Christ published the Evangelization Proclamation. It was a renewed effort to grow the ICOC and aimed to put a church in every nation where there was a city with a population of over 100,000. The organization was already in 54 nations and needed 111 more. But new seed churches required a lot of money, and so there was even more pressure on members to give. Church leaders who already felt put upon were further agitated. Some leaders not only felt exhausted by the constant giving, but grew tired of the favoritism Kip showed to churches that were meeting goals. Kip would reportedly often lavish personal gifts on leaders who had his favor, purchasing high-priced clocks and artwork for them. At the same time, he was known to yell and throw things at those who upset him. After the evangelization proclamation, one church decided they'd had enough of his leadership. In 1994, the church in Kip's hometown of Indianapolis decided that they could no longer sit idly by while Kip played favorites. Ed Powers, the lead evangelist of the church in Indianapolis, felt a deep desire to make things right in his church. He had one of the larger congregations in the Midwest, with a membership of about 700. If he couldn't abide something, he felt it was only fair to tell his members. In particular, Ed felt forced giving was unacceptable. He didn't like being pressured into making his members give, only for their funds to go directly to L.A. He knew some of his members could barely afford the normal tithe and felt terrible asking for more. He also felt the power structure was wrong and didn't like that the church in L.A. was making decisions for all of them. He wanted the autonomy to do what he felt was best. But before he could take the church leadership to task, he knew he had to get everyone else at his church on board. Ed met with his staff, and after careful consideration, they unanimously decided that a change had to be made. They still wanted to be a part of the ICOC. They believed in KIPP, they believed in the mission, but they wanted an end to forced giving and the freedom to make their own choices as a church. Ed gathered his congregation one evening and laid out his concerns to his flock. It was tense. If the majority of the members disagreed with him, Ed knew he would be labeled as divisive and would probably lose his job. 
He put his proposals to a vote and waited nervously as they were tallied. The final result was nearly unanimous. According to Jim Van Arsdal, a member of the church in Indianapolis, all but seven members voted in favor of Ed's concessions. Later that evening, Ed called the leadership in L.A. and left a message telling them of the church's decision. In the middle of the night, the L.A. leadership called him back. They wanted Ed to walk them through the issues he found with the church. Ed explained his stance against compulsory giving and his qualms with taking orders from Los Angeles. He reiterated his desire to stay part of the International Churches of Christ as a network. They could help one another but he felt he knew his congregation better than the leadership in L.A. The L.A. leaders listened to Ed, but didn't have many answers for him. They coyly responded that they would be in contact with him soon. Early the next morning, hundreds of members of Ed's congregation were awoken by phone calls from friends from other churches. Word of Ed's ultimatum had clearly spread throughout the region, but everyone seemed to think Indianapolis had left the ICOC for good. Ed was taken aback. He viewed the campaign as misinformation orchestrated by other church leaders. He had no desire to leave KIPP or the International Churches of Christ. KIPP, on the other hand, saw Ed's efforts as mutinous. He immediately went to Indianapolis with some of his top men to quell the revolt. When they arrived, they attempted to dissuade members from leaving by renting out space in a downtown hotel conference room and giving a talk. They wanted to present their own narrative of events and to assure members that their tithing practices were God's will. However, between Ed's sermon, the phone calls, and the downtown conference, the Indianapolis congregation was confused. The ICOC leadership drove a wedge between members of the church who followed Ed and those who were loyal to Kip. While most agreed with Ed, many ultimately wanted to stay with the ICOC because they thought it was the only way they could be saved. Even though Ed wanted to stay affiliated with the International Churches of Christ, the LA leadership made it clear this wasn't an option. Members in Indianapolis could either follow the mandates from L.A., or they could leave. A line was drawn in the sand. Those loyal to the ICOC went downtown, where they set up a new congregation that was loyal to KIPP. The others stayed with Ed in the original church. In the end, only 200 of the 700 members decided to stay in the International Churches of Christ. The rest went with Ed. The Indianapolis Church soon changed its name to the Circle City Church of Christ. Kip was furious. Later that year, he wrote, For those who continue to oppose us, they are lost, not because their baptism became invalid, but the scriptures are clear that those who oppose and grumble against God's leaders and divide God's church are in fact opposing God. Thus, the rebellious become lost because they do not have a true faith. Kip excommunicated Ed's followers from the ICOC. This was the first big attempt by anyone in the church to take power back from him, and he wouldn't let them leave unscathed. They needed to know their actions had eternal implications. However, by this point, Kip's empire was so vast that even this blow was simply regarded as an unfortunate speed bump. 
the ICOC as a whole continued to roll on. Later that year, in August 1994, Kip went to Manila in the Philippines to rally the global congregation at the World Leadership Conference. It had only been a few months since his evangelization proclamation, and Kip needed his leaders from around the world to know that his plans were going to take a lot of work. He believed in the work he was doing, but it would only continue if the church was growing. Kip saw things on a global scale, as if he were playing a game of risk, but he seemed to only see the outcomes, never what was happening to those on the ground, making his dreams a reality. Kip told those at the conference that he believed world events were influenced by the presence of the church. The Holy Spirit had come into so many communities thanks to him, and incredible things had happened. Just five months earlier, they opened their church in South Africa. Shortly afterward, apartheid was abolished. Kip was excited about what the church would do next. He believed it could even bring peace to the Middle East. This was why this sermon was so important. His message had the power to change the world. Kip was now considerably older than he had been during his time in Boston, but he still had a youthful energy at the pulpit. He was funny, firm, and passionate. The audience always responded to Kip, and what could have been a boring sermon instead became divine theater. Near the end of his hour and a half message, Kip highlighted the importance of church growth. He said, if our churches are not growing, it's sin. You've got sin in your church, it's cursed. You've got to get back to sacrificially living. He told the congregation that if a church wasn't growing, it was due to the leadership. When he looked out at his leaders, he saw the future of the church, not only in them, but in their children. The next generation of disciples would come from these leaders. Kip held up his family as a shining example. Kip seemed to be a modern-day prophet, and he made everyone feel like they could be too, if they, like him, lived a pure life. If his children could start at a young age and follow in their father's footsteps by sharing their faith in school, then every other family could follow. If a child was not on the path to discipleship, it was because there was sin in the home. He said unequivocally, if a child fell away from the church and their parent was a leader, that leader would have to step down. He didn't realize that this very statement would be his undoing. Up next, we'll hear how Kip's time at the International Churches of Christ came to an end. This episode is brought to you by the Inspire Collection by Kalia. Ladies, your workouts are about to get an upgrade. The new Inspire leggings by Kalia are exactly what you want when it comes to activewear. It's their most versatile collection yet. They look good, feel good, and stay put. Using Lycra Adaptive Fiber, it compresses and molds to the body like a second skin. And it's unbelievably stretchy, so you can move however you want. Shop the Inspire Collection by Kalia now, exclusively at Dick's Sporting Goods. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now back to the story. In 1994, 40-year-old Kip McKean wrote an evangelization proclamation which laid out a new goal for his movement, the International Churches of Christ. Kip wanted the ICOC to establish a church in every nation that had a city with a population of over 100,000 residents. Only six short years later, by the year 2000, 46-year-old Kip McKean had good news. His congregation's hard work aggressively recruiting new members and endlessly donating to the church had paid off. Despite negative press for their cult-like practices and divisiveness, the ICOC had reached their goal. They were a global powerhouse. They now had over 100,000 members in over 100 countries. Even if the membership numbers had plateaued a little, it was still a long way from the small house in Boston where Kip and his wife met their first 30 members. Kip was proud of his family and their part in the expansion. His wife had followed him wherever God called and had been an integral part of the church's women's ministry. His children were succeeding in school, and his daughter, his oldest, had just been accepted to Harvard. She was a bright star in the church. By virtue of being his daughter, she was always in the spotlight. In spite of the pressure, she thrived. Kip strongly believed in higher education for his own children, despite reports of many disciples in his church pressuring other young members to prioritize their faith over their schooling. When his daughter went to Harvard in the fall of 2000, she went with a little spiritual help. According to the Boston Globe, the church paid for a disciple to be there for his daughter while she was away at school. They were there to help her in times of need and to keep her in step with the church. But some in the church didn't agree with this use of funds. In addition to spending on themselves, the McKeans helped produce a Christian short film entitled The Cross that was to be used in church teachings for new members. It had a price tag of around $500,000. The leaders grew tired of Kip's hypocrisy, and what happened next would only further these feelings. By January of 2001, his daughter, after seeing what it was like out in the world, had stopped going to church. It was a huge blow to Kip. He felt he had failed as a parent and as a church leader. Years earlier, he had made it clear that if a leader's child left the church, they would have to step down. Kip was a victim of his own piousness. Even he could not live up to his own standard. His daughter's departure from the ICOC gave the exhausted leaders a small opening to topple his leadership. They demanded that he step down from his position as lead evangelist of the Los Angeles ICOC. Even Kip's friends believed some time away from leadership would allow him and his family the opportunity to spiritually heal. In 2001, 47-year-old Kip began a year-long sabbatical. He stepped away from the Los Angeles church and from his position as the global leader of the ICOC, which effectively eliminated any power he had left. 
leaders hoped that Kip would reflect on his previous actions. Members of the church were much more open with Kip after he was removed from his position of power. They called out his demanding behavior, pride, and hypocrisy. While Kip was preaching that everyone must be discipled, he wasn't being discipled himself. Members all looked up to him, but no one was keeping Kip accountable. Kip expressed regret for his actions, but still seemed to be mad at the leaders who brought him down. He believed they were being hypocritical, as many of their own failures mimicked his. In spite of everything, he still believed he had a chance to come back. However, after his year-long sabbatical was over in November of 2002, 48-year-old Kip was pressured to resign from his figurehead position as the World Missions Evangelist for the ICOC. After stepping down, he penned a letter to the entire congregation apologizing for his behavior. Kip said, My sins are clear and grievous. I have been arrogant, almost always thinking I was right. I did not listen. I did not actively seek discipling for me and my family. There were times when I corrected people that I was mean, cruel, and I even humiliated them. I was too controlling. For this, I apologize. I am truly sorry. The church still allowed him to preach, but it looked like Kip's influence over the ICOC was at an end. The other church leaders did their best to move forward without Kip. In 2003, another leader at the ICOC, Henry Crete, wrote an open letter. He denounced what the church had become and sought to change its path. He wanted to eliminate the pressure that had been put on members through discipleship and ridiculous tithing practices. The letter had sweeping implications. It essentially ended discipleship and eliminated central leadership by giving individual churches autonomy. They had seen what could go wrong when one person was given complete control. But Kip felt cast aside. He was a relic of, as he saw it, a different church. Kip knew he no longer belonged at the church that he helped to create. He started looking for a new home. His prayers were answered in 2003 when 49-year-old Kip was asked to join the ICOC church in Portland as its lead minister. He felt compelled to go because they were still loyal to him and his teachings. They still practiced discipleship. Kip had guided the church well before he was ousted, and they believed he could do it again. Kip viewed the Portland church as the new home base for the movement. In spite of everything that had happened, Kip still believed in himself and his movement. He still felt he was speaking for God. He attempted to convince everyone who was still loyal to him to come to Portland to join his new church. Naturally, the rest of the ICOC had problems with his attempt to retake power. In 2005, church leaders from the International Churches of Christ wrote an open letter to all of their congregations, calling out Kip. They saw a lack of true repentance for his past behavior and labeled his actions divisive. He was trying to take members from their churches and bring them back under his control. In the past, Kip had viewed every criticism against him as nothing more than tests of his faith. He never truly changed because he always viewed himself as right. To him, the other churches had fallen away from God. Kip made his break away from the ICOC official in late 2005. 
he opened up rebranded churches across the country, starting with his Portland movement, christening his new movement the International Christian Church. Staying true to his previous pattern, in 2007, 53-year-old Kip moved back to Los Angeles to jumpstart a new international Christian church. He called it the City of Angels International Christian Church, and it's still in operation today. Kip's movement now has about 7,000 members in 92 churches in 35 different nations. The International Christian Church is a near-carbon copy of Kip's first movement. Instead of being totally committed, the new disciples are now sold out to God. Kip still believes that his is the true movement of God and continues the same aggressive practices that were so controversial in Boston. Meanwhile, the International Churches of Christ also continues to form congregations all over the world. While they now have optional discipleship and no central leadership, there have still been troubling accusations from former members that they're expected to tithe an extreme amount. While many find meaning in Kip's teachings and his beliefs are heartfelt, he has hurt thousands of his followers, using their faith for his own personal and monetary gain. He remains as he always has been, a lost sheep convinced He's the shepherd. Thanks again for tuning into Cults. We'll be back next Tuesday with another episode. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite ParCast originals, like Cults, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Cults on Spotify, just open the app and type Cults in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Cults was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, and Carly Madden. This episode of Cults was written by Robert Tyler Walker and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. (laughs) 